Well, just before we open the Word of God tonight, let me just express my own appreciation to you folks for the opportunity to be a part of this week together. It was a blessing tonight to walk into the foyer and within literally a minute or two hear several folks sharing testimonies of answered prayer, sharing the blessing of what God is doing in and through their lives as a result of prayer. And that just encourages me so much. What a blessing. And I'm just grateful for this opportunity. You folks have been very, very kind. And uh, I have certainly enjoyed the fellowship for these days. Uh, Hopefully the next time I can bring my wife with me. Uh, You ladies would love her ministry. Uh, My wife will probably put on a lady's tee for you. She does that everywhere she goes. And uh, it's amazing how she can get a group of ladies over a cup of tea, open her heart, touch their hearts, and God does something very special. And so we'll maybe work that out someday. But uh, once again, it's been a blessing to be here. And uh, God willing, I'll get on home early tomorrow morning and be back uh, with the family uh, for the days ahead. Let's take our Bibles now, and I'm going to invite you to open them with me tonight, please, to the book of Genesis, chapter 13. The book of Genesis, chapter 13. I'm actually going to read from three different portions of Scripture as we begin the message tonight. Genesis, chapter 13, notice verse 13. The Bible says... But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Now will you turn with me please over to chapter 18 and look with me at verse number 20 and I'll read the next three verses, Genesis 18, 20. And the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grievous... I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me, and if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. Then turn over with me, if you will, please, to... Genesis chapter 19, just the next chapter. And I want to finish up by reading to you verses 24 and 25. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. Folks, I want to speak to you tonight about making a difference. Will you join me for just a moment as we pray and we ask God to speak to us tonight. Father, we are grateful for this blessed book, the Bible, and again, we open it tonight with a desire that you will teach us that you will speak to us. Dear God, may we learn, may we be benefited by the truth, but not just simply for the sake of another message or more notes, but may we be moved to action 
to be the kind of people who know how to stand before the Lord, to make up the hedge, to stand in the gap before you for our land that you might not destroy it. God, help me now as I preach. Help the folks as they listen, and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Two years ago, as I mentioned, during the month of December, I had the opportunity to spend a day in New York City working on the project that I've showed you tonight. Till the day was over, I have to admit, I was weary. I was exhausted. And I remember the men who were with me that day doing the video work, sat and had a little supper, and then we made our way by subway to southern Manhattan, and then we got on the Staten Island ferry, and we rode back over to Staten Island, picked up our vehicles, and from there I had about a three-and-a-half-hour drive home very, very late that night. As I was driving, I was reviewing the day. And I was thinking a lot about the project we were working on, a call to God's people to pray for our nation. And even though in some ways I was physically and probably mentally kind of worn out from the, the intensity of the day, even as I was driving, I found my heart and my mind being deeply stirred. I, I found myself being deeply moved by the need of the hour. Part of that came from three images from the day that I couldn't get out of my mind. One of them was a banner that I saw in the financial districts of Manhattan hung up and down the streets, which simply said, the financial capital of the world. And I couldn't help but think, imagine the arrogance. The image that kind of stuck in my mind that day was... The image of SWAT teams patrolling the streets of the city. Now, folks, I've spent many, many trips in New York City through the years and feel very much at home in some ways in the city. And through the years, the law enforcement presence has continued to grow. And in some ways, the city has gotten safer. But I remember thinking to myself, this is incredible. And at first, I was kind of like, wow. And then all of a sudden, it dawned on me that the reason the SWAT teams were on the streets was because the day before San Bernardino, California, the mass shooting terrorist attack had occurred. And suddenly, I was saddened to think... What a shame that now our streets have to be patrolled by SWAT teams. We claim to be the land of the kind of couldn't get rid of. 
was something I had seen late in the day. We were making our way back down into the lower part of Manhattan. We had gotten on a subway car. The doors closed. The train began to move. And I became aware that on the bench seat, no more than four or five feet from where I was standing, sat a lesbian couple. Who, might I say, were determined to make sure that everybody on the train knew who they were and what they were about. And even as we made our way to the stop where we would get off, I found myself getting more and more upset by what I was in the presence of. Folks, can I tell you that as I left the city that day with images of arrogancy, violence, and perversion, it just intensified my passion even more to call God's people to pray for our nation. Men and women, can I say to you tonight, America is going to meet God. But may I make it very clear that we will either meet God in revival or we will meet God in ruination. America tonight is on a collision course with God. Oh, I know we love to speak recite the pledge and talk about one nation under God. And I know that on our coins it says, in God we trust. And I know that political speeches typically end with these words, God bless America. But may I remind you tonight that there was a day, even in some of our lives, when America basically told God, get out and stay out. And so the simple truth tonight is we have continued down the slippery slope as a nation of becoming a godless nation. So what can we do about it? Is there hope? Some would say, well, we just need more religious saturation. Others would say, no, if it was improved education. Maybe different people would say stricter legislation. Others would tell us economic stabilization. Some say it even depends upon political administration. But folks, I'm here to tell you tonight that if God is going to revive America with another great spiritual awakening, he's not going to begin in the White House or a courthouse or a schoolhouse. He'll begin in his house. And that's where you and I come into the picture. You say, Brother Tom, what are you, an optimist or a pessimist? I'm neither. I'm a realist. I'm convinced that there is a real God. And as long as he is God, men and women, there still is hope. If I didn't believe that this week 
could be the beginning of the next great spiritual awakening, I wouldn't have bothered to come. That's why I've tonight taken you to a text in Genesis where we go way, 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 way back into history and likewise look at a culture, a city, a civilization that, yes, was on a collision course with God. But from this story tonight, I want to draw out three wonderful lessons that I believe we can grab a hold of tonight. We can establish our faith upon. I want you to look with me, number one, at this thought. The difference one man can make. You know, we have heard that there is strength in numbers. That's why million-man marches and moral majorities seem to be rather impressive. But go ahead, study it out biblically, study it out historically. And do you know what you will find? Typically, a significant work of God begins even with just a man. A Jeremiah Lanfear. Or an Abraham. We read it tonight in chapter 18 and verse 22. Abraham stood yet before the Lord. One man having a one-on-one with the God of the universe. But will you please understand tonight that even one man can make a difference? There are two things about Abraham's life that I think we need to understand or make note of. First of all, Abraham's friendship. And if you're taking notes, maybe you want to write these words, he knew God. How do I know that? Well, I know it because three different times in Scripture, the third and final one being in James chapter 2 and verse 23, Abraham is given a title that no other man in Scripture was given. He is called three times the friend of God. I am fascinated by that statement. I'm fascinated because in many ways, Abraham was just as human as any man that ever lived. In fact, if you want to know the truth between Genesis 12 and Genesis 25, the 13 chapters that basically cover the span of years of his life, Do you know the Bible is actually quite graphic even about some of his own personal failures? Which leads me to simply say the best of men are just men at best. We know that. But here was a man who knew what it was like to be on a first name basis with God. 
to be comfortable in the presence of God, who knew how to talk to God, who let God talk to him. It's an interesting study. It's a whole message in and of itself. But there are five different times in those 13 chapters that Abraham built an altar. You and I don't relate well to altars, but I can tell you this. To Abraham, his altar was his meeting place with God. It was his place, like we've talked about now, over these nights as we've considered your walk with God. It was that very special place where he would go and he and God would spend time together. That's how they became friends. Men and women, if you're going to be a difference maker for God, you're going to have to be the kind of a person who doesn't have simply a casual acquaintance with God, but rather an intimate friendship. And that is going to take time, and that is going to take communication, and that's going to require consistency and faithfulness on your part to make sure that you never miss an appointment with God. But not only do we see Abraham's faith, or friendship, secondly, we see Abraham's faith. We might say that Abraham was God's friend because he knew God, but the emphasis now is upon Abraham's faith and the fact that he believed God. Once again, four different times we find it in Scripture. Genesis, Romans, Galatians, and again in the book of James, verse, chapter 2, verse 23, we're told, He believed God. Folks, do you know what it means to live by faith? It's simply taking God at His word and acting upon it. I just spent probably an entire week studying the portion of Hebrews 11 that deals with the life of Abraham. I don't have time to re-preach my studies to you tonight except to say there were three significant times in his life where he had to take God at his word and act upon it. He had to go where God told him to go. Genesis 12. Pack up, you're moving. And we're told that he went out not knowing whither he went. Then you move to chapter 15 and you move to chapter 18 and we find that Abraham had to believe what God told him to believe. Abraham, look at the sky. See the stars? You will have as many Seed in your generation as there are stars in that sky. Meanwhile, Abraham's getting older and older. Sarah's getting older and older. For her, it's past the time when women are able to bear children. And yet, this man and this woman continued, though they had to laugh about it occasionally, to believe that God would be true to his word. Then you come to Genesis 22, and Abraham had to do what God told him to do. That son had been born. 
And God says, take him up on the mount and sacrifice him to me. Can I tell you that sacrifices don't get off the don't get off the altar alive? He was told to kill his son. But Hebrews 11 says that he was willing to do so, believing that if he took the life of his own son, God would give it back. That's what we call living and dying by faith. Those of us who will make a difference for God are the kind of people who trust God in an extraordinary way. Not because we see where we're going to end up, not because we know how it's all going to turn out, not because we have figured out how all the needs will be met, but because God said so and we believe it and we'll act upon it. Number one, the difference one man can make. But then there's a second thing that I want you to see, and it's now going to take us into Genesis chapter 18. Number two, it's the difference one prayer can make. The difference one prayer can make. We read in our text tonight that Abraham stood yet before the Lord. Then you go to verse 23, and Abraham drew near. We might say he connected with his God. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Prayer takes us closer to the heart of God than any other activity in life. He drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Can I tell you, Abraham already knew that Sodom would probably get what they deserved and they deserved what they were going to get. But he still had a prayer. And it was a prayer based upon people who lived right. Verse 24, Peradventure, there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are there in Isn't that interesting? God was, or I'm sorry, Abraham was not making his appeal to God based on the wicked people in the city, but upon the basis of the righteous people in the city. He then has a conversation with God, talking about the righteous and the wicked. And then we come to verse 26. And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Men and women, do you know what that is? That's called an answer to prayer. The very thing Abraham asked, God answered. God said, if there are 50 people living right in that city, I'll spare it for the 50. Well, then you begin to move down through the chapter. And Abraham allows his prayer to become even more focused because his next request 
is, God, will you spare it for 45? And then 40, and then 30, and then 20, and eventually he gets to the point where he said, God, if there are 10, And God said in verse 22, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. Folks, do you know what we have here? We have a man who is doing exactly what God said he looks for when a culture or a city is on a collision course with God. Ezekiel chapter 22 is where we find the passage. I sought for a man among them, God says, that should stand, that should make up a hedge and stand in the gap. But what does it say next? Before me. Sometimes we assume that making up a hedge and standing in the gap is something we're going to have to do in Washington or do at our local school board meeting or do with a, commu a community action committee. It's something we're going to have to do to help our law enforcement people. But that's not what God said. God said, I'm looking for someone to stand before me. Men and women, I can tell you this about intercessors. They have a burden. They have a vision. They have a passion. And they have a commitment. Folks, I have spent my life, really, it started when I was a teenager, but I have spent much of my life studying the history of revival. You obviously know that I've researched a great deal in regards to the New York City Fulton Street Prayer Revival. But can I tell you that from time to time I almost get to the point where I take my files of history accounts and my books and videos and DVDs and whatever... And, and I just almost want to push them aside. Can I tell you why? Because I kind of get tired of reading the history of revival. And I'd like to help write the history of revival. Why is it that when we talk about praying for revival in our nation, a spiritual awakening in our nation, why is it we have to go back so many years? Could it be that maybe you and I are living in the generation that will see it the next time? But I'm telling you, it's dependent upon those of us who value the difference one prayer can make. There's one third and final thing that I want to give you tonight, kind of in conclusion. It's the difference one family can make. Have you ever done what I've done at times? And read down through this passage 
Verse 32, God says, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. Verse 33, the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham and Abraham returned unto his place. It was like the prayer meeting was over. Have you ever found yourself saying, why did Abraham quit? I mean, after all, God and him were working together really, really good, weren't they? So why did he stop at ten? Folks, I want you to go with me to chapter 19. And I want to show you something. According to Genesis chapter 14 and verse 12, we read that Lot dwelt in Sodom. And then you come to chapter 19. And we find that there is a a reference to some things that basically went on on the front porch of Lot's house there in Sodom. Messengers of God have come to Sodom and Lot has taken them into his home. But verse verse 4 tells us that the men of Sodom compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And a conversation begins with Lot because they want Lot to bring these two messengers out to them. Well, let's pause just for a moment and start to do a little math problem. Lot and his wife are living in Sodom, So we know that we're going to start with two. And then we work down into the passage. In verse 8, Lot says, Behold now, I have two daughters which have not known man. Two unmarried young women still living at home. So we can do the math. Two plus two, we're now at four. And then we begin to work our way a little bit further down into the passage. Verse 12, And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters? This is interesting, folks. We understand, if you start piecing this together, that Lot had at least two more daughters who had married two men and become sons-in-laws. That's another four, and we add four and four, and we now have eight. And there's also reference to thy Sons, which is plural, so we've got to have at least two. Are you with me? Eight plus two now equals ten. Folks, we'll just stop right there. The simple point is, at a minimum, Lot's family had at least ten family members living in Sodom. 
And when Abraham reached the point in his prayer where he said, God, will you spare the city? If there are ten. Uncle Abraham was thinking of Lot and his family. And God himself responded by basically saying to Abraham, if Lot and his family alone will be righteous, they will live right, I will spare the city for his family. Folks, how many times have we kind of felt like we were in the minority? Oh, it's just me and the wife and the kids. We're no big deal. Really. But then you begin to look around a meeting like this tonight, a gathering like this tonight, and suddenly we go, yes, but how many families are represented throughout this building this evening? God would have spared Sodom and Gomorrah if one family had lived right. What could God do for America if families like mine and families like yours would likewise determine to live right, even in a world that's gone wrong? Be the light, even in a world that's dark. Live for God, even in a world that's dying in its sin. Men and women, even one family can make a great difference. And that lesson is brought out so clearly as we see Lot's family. But unfortunately, we know the rest of the story. And we read it tonight in our text. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. What a tragedy. God said, Abraham, you can make a difference. The prayer you're praying, it will make a difference. Lot, if your life will live right, it will make a difference. But in the end, not only did Lot get into Sodom, Sodom got into Lot, and Sodom had a bigger influence on Lot than Lot had on Sodom. And when it was all said and done, Lot and his wife and two daughters made a desperate run for their lives as the fire and brimstone began to fall. And God literally wiped those cities off the face of the planet. I'm reminded of a simple statement that we've read in our history textbooks. Unless we learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. Someone has said, if God doesn't judge America, he'll owe an apology to Sodom and Gomorrah. That is, unless some of us as individuals begin to pray and all of us as families begin to live. And God does what he said he will do. He spares the place.
Folks, I want to end our service tonight and really end this conference in a time of prayer. In fact, let me just give you a brief word or two of instruction. I'm done preaching and speaking. We're not going to sing again.